It's your favorite childbirth educator here, Joni Edelman, and this is Radical Childbirth Education. Education for parents and providers who want the down low on the low down. Can I handle the pain of childbirth? Welcome back to the podcast, everybody, and thanks for joining me for another, thanks for joining me for another episode. Thank you for joining me for another episode. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Um, I'm trying something new. I'm trying to record the audio for the podcast and also a video at the same time. In the last couple of episodes, there was a couple of times that I used my hands to illustrate something and then realized that it would be helpful for people to see my hands. Excuse me. We have our first burp on on camera now. Um, It would be helpful for people to see my hands, but they can't see my hands because podcasts are audio. So I thought I would record uh, a video as well, and then hopefully just upload them both. You cannot record video and audio and then edit one without the other. That wouldn't make sense, right? So I'm going to try to do it straight shot. That's how we're going to try. Um, so before we get going, a reminder that my online hybrid class will be kicking off its next cohort in the first week of March. This is a class that meets every week for four weeks on Sunday. We have two hours of instruction and question and answer time as well. And this class essentially emulates my in-person class just over a longer period of time and um, in a slightly different format. You get access in addition to the class to a bunch of great handouts and planning workbooks and other books that I've made for my clients that will no doubt be very, very useful to you as you navigate the end of your pregnancy, your birth, and postpartum. So you can check that out at 13moonsbirthwork.com. That's the number 13. And let's get going with today's subject matter. So the first question I ask in class of people is what they're most nervous about in labor or birth. And pretty much everyone is mostly worried about dying, which is um, expected. But also, you know, it's you're more likely to die getting in your car, honestly, than you are having a baby. So it's funny because if you ask somebody, what what are you worried? You're getting ready to go somewhere. What are you most worried about? They probably wouldn't say worried about getting a car accident on the way. But you have a higher chance of getting in a car accident than you do of dying in childbirth or even being, you know, severely injured or wounded in childbirth. So, but that's always the first thing. And then the second thing is always, can I handle the pain of birth? To which I answer, frankly and immediately, of course you can. Of course you can, because birth has been happening for a very, very, very long time. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years as humans. And before that, mammals and other creatures with placentas. So billions of years, really, but certainly 40 or 50,000 years as human beings. And only the last couple of hundred have we had anything for pain to manage pain. Um, Prior to the advent of pain management, birth was just something you did. People did not die from the pain of childbirth. It's that's not how it goes. Because something in you that's made by you isn't going to be stronger than you. So that's the first thing I like to tell people is that. Birth is coming from within you. Your body is not going to create contractions that you can't manage. It just doesn't make sense. The second thing 
once we get that laid out. The second thing is to address how the perception of pain changes depending on a lot of other factors. So pain is impacted not just by the sensation of the nerves, the nerve neurons in our body sending those signals to our brain, but also by how tense we are, how frightened we are, how much we're anticipating what's coming, the stories we are telling ourselves about pain. And those things play as much of a role as the actual nerve signal itself. So the second thing, after you acknowledge that your body's not going to create something you can't manage, the second thing to acknowledge is that how you talk to yourself about the discomfort of labor matters. I still commonly use the term contraction to describe what's going on because it is in fact a muscle contraction. It is a, from a physiological anatomical standpoint, it's a muscle contraction. People like to, sometimes people like to call them waves or rushes, which I think are also perfectly lovely ways to describe them. I particularly like the use of the term wave because so much of a birth is so much of a, a contraction is actually like a wave. It has a peak as a, you know, has a high point and it has a build up and it has a letdown similar to the way a wave is. It's a great visual. It's a great visual when you're in labor to think about waves because the sensation is so similar to waves. And um, even listening to music or the sounds of the ocean can be really helpful. But regardless of what you call it, it is a muscle contraction. Um, and that term, the term contraction actually brings me some comfort because as a person who is medically trained, who understands how contractions happen in the body via the, um, you know, transmission of ions across the cell membrane, um, calcium, potassium, sodium, so forth. I understand what a muscle, how a muscle contracts, how it works. So for me, referring to it as a contraction brings to mind a literal muscle contracting, which is what a muscle does when you walk and when you lift something, right? You have to contract your muscle to pick up your cup like I'm doing right now. That's a muscle contraction. That's not um, pathological, right? It's normal. But how we talk to ourselves about them can impact the way that we feel about them. Um, it's the, really the only way that I can explain why people who birth at home <clears throat> seem to have less pain in their labor. The idea of pain tolerance in labor and how high or low your pain tolerance is, is just, it doesn't even make sense um, because you've never experienced labor unless you've, until you've experienced labor. And so you really don't know what your quote unquote tolerance is for something. And your tolerance varies a lot depending on a lot of other factors. Um, for those of you who have tattoos, I have a lot of tattoos and I've gotten tattoos at different times of day, um, different lengths of time. I've sat for a tattoo, um, you know, different levels of detail in the tattoo, different tattoo artists. And the discomfort of a tattoo is always impacted by all of those factors, not just the needle, right? How hard or soft are they pressing? How tense or relaxed am I? How tired am I? Am I hungry? All of those things impact the sensation of pain. And that's true in labor as well. But 
One of the reasons that I think that people at home seem to experience less pain overall, and that's not a rule, but it, it does seem to be mostly true, is that fear increases pain. Fear increases tension, and tension increases the perception of pain. And that's what we call the fear-tension-pain triangle cycle. Um, and I'll drop that. Uh, it comes from the book that you get when you take my class, but I'll drop that in the show notes just as a standalone PDF so you can read it. It's really informative and very useful for sort of understanding the way that our fear impacts our, our body when it comes to discomfort. So being at home and feeling safe removes a lot of the fear right you still have you can still have fear of the birth itself or of labor or of any of those aspects of it but when you remove the fear of these are strangers who i don't know and that fear is very primal because this is an unknown uncomfortable location right when you remove that fear you remove a whole layer from from this experience right but that doesn't mean that you can't experience that in the hospital what it means is you might have to work a little harder um, you might have to have some conversations with yourself going in. Ideally, ideally, you have a doula always. I'm going to say get a doula, get a doula. But if you have a doula, your doula is going to walk you through what's going on. And ideally, she's going to be educating you during your pregnancy about protecting your space once you get to the hospital. And we know, as we've talked about in other episodes, and we'll talk about it again and again, that birth is happening in the back of our brain, in the primal part of our brain, not in our brain stem, not the lizard, not the lizard part that just helps us breathe, but more the monkey part, that part that includes all of the innate behaviors of being a mammal. And therefore, even though we have this gigantic frontal lobe up here that allows us all of this thinking and reason and logic, we don't actually need or use that during birth. And the more that we try to use it during birth, actually the more trouble we have overall um, because birth demands a sort of surrender from that part of our brain if we have to go into that part of our brain to ask questions or defend our choices then we are taken out of our physiology and put into our thinking mind so one of the ways to protect yourself from this in the hospital is to make sure you're going into the hospital with a really clear birth preference sheet or birth plan that you've discussed with your physician ahead of time you know you're not going to get backlash from them, at least, about some of your choices if you've chosen, for example, to opt to not have an IV or to have intermittent or infrequent monitoring or no monitoring at all or whatever you want it to look like um, so that you don't have to defend those choices when you get to the hospital. Informed consent means that you're given all of the choices and all of the possibilities of those choices, and then you have time to make a decision uninterrupted by anyone outside of you and your partner or you, your partner, and your doula if you want her advice or opinion, but that you're allowed to make that decision and that that decision is then respected. Informed consent does not include coercion or fear-mongering or telling people their baby could die. Um, just like that, just, well, your baby could die. Because yes, your baby could die. I could die. We could. I could die right now. This whole house could cave in on me. Anything can happen, right? Um, just your baby could die is not informed consent. Um, when it comes to monitoring, informed consent would be, this is what's evidence-based, this is what we do as a hospital, this is what I prefer as a physician, all of those things can be said, but 
at the end of the day, if you don't want continuous or even intermittent or even periodic monitoring, you can absolutely say that. So ideally you have this all worked out before you get there so that you don't have to fight the battle when you get there. Because what will happen sometimes is that your nurse who is trying to follow hospital protocol will actually call your physician and try to get your physician to talk to you through the phone, either on speaker or literally get on the phone with you to tell you why you need XYZ intervention. Um, my experience of this happening is that the laboring person will almost always acquiesce, give in to whatever the physician is asking them to do, because of course you are in a state where you are not working from your logical mind and you just want everybody to be quiet and leave you alone. So you're answer is based more on a desire to be left alone than it is on what you actually want very often. When people do dig their heels in and stand their ground, even if they have to fight a little bit, once their wishes are respected, then they can kind of go on their way. What we don't want to get into is a situation in the hospital where we're having to battle over and over and over again for the same thing. So if you go into triage, to be you know checked when you get to the hospital to make sure you're in labor and you say i don't want an iv now and i don't want an iv later and they say well you need to get one and then you explain yourself again and they agree but then you go to the room and you get the same talk again that's what we don't want to get into because again we don't want to be taken out of the physiology this is going to increase your pain this is going to increase your experience of pain the other things that really increase our pain experience in birth is the inability to move about freely, which means if you are stuck on a bed or you have to be still while someone puts an IV in or any of those things, at least temporarily impact your ability to manage the sensations that you're feeling. So this is one of the reasons why a, a doula will usually tell you to stay home as long as you feel safe, ideally until you're well into active labor or even beyond that. Um, I tell my clients if it's their first baby, they can wait until they're feeling, we can, we can wait until they're feeling pressure in their bottom con continuously or even until they get a little bit pushy before we go to the hospital because most first-time moms have a little bit of pushing time ahead of them before their baby's going to be born. And if they truly want a low or no intervention birth, walking into the door and having the baby within an hour is a great way to achieve it. They really don't know what hit them. And it's honestly kind of funny because they kind of run around panicking as if there's an emergency happening when really it doesn't matter what anybody in the room does. The baby's just going to come out and that's what's going to happen. Um, but that can in increase your perception of pain. And then the other thing to be aware of is that your body is going to produce endorphins that are truly better than any other thing they can give you in labor. There is nothing they can give you in labor for quote unquote pain relief that is going to meet you better than your own endorphins. And this is why if you've ever watched somebody give birth without medication, or you've seen a video of someone birthing without medication, as soon as the baby's out within a few seconds, really, usually within 15 seconds, the mother is holding the baby and has completely forgotten right? She's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that or something of that nature. Usually women, when they're really left alone, they have a pretty similar pattern. If they're not being told what to do or they don't feel that there's an expectation of what they're supposed to do, 
and people are just sort of standing back, what usually happens is the baby is born and the mother will either guide the baby to the floor or bed in front of her or just let it come out and sort of hit the ground. And then she'll take a moment and kind of look up to the ceiling or the sky. And this is so meaningful to me, whether you're religious or spiritual or whatever, it's like that surrender of this was bigger. Wow, this was really something. What just happened, right? We innately just kind of look to the universe or to God to be like, whoa. And then, and then our brain does a quick shift, a quick gear shift from one hormone stream to another. The, the pain is now gone, right? Those endorphins are still there. There's still adrenaline there, which is keeping you and baby alert. And then mom will pick baby up and hold baby and connect with baby and has forgotten completely about the discomfort of any of it. That's an important, you know, evolutionary development, whether who knows when those endorphins became a thing, ideally always. But um, I think it's really fascinating to watch other mammals birth and I live on a farm, so we have cows and we have, you know, mammals birthing, not infrequently around here. And mammals don't seem, mammals on the whole, besides human, don't seem to be in very much pain when they're birthing. They seem curious about what's going on. And you'll see a cow kind of turn around and look at her abdomen and even lick it. And then just turn back around and eat grass. And my feeling about why this is is because without that added layer of fear, because of they don't have that frontal lobe ability to think and be afraid, all they know is brainstem fear, threat of life fear, fight or flight fear, right? There's a predator, there's a danger of some kind. As long as they're safe, which is they will seek safety and privacy on their own for the most part, um, think of cats and dogs. Where do they have their kittens and puppies? Closets, under beds, things like that. Corners, boxes, right? Humans are no different. But they will find their safe space and then they will do their labor there. And they're curious about what's going on. But because they are not fra afraid, they don't seem to perceive it as being painful as much as it is just sort of a sensation. That's odd. What is that? What is that feeling? And this is one of the re reasons that I think the mind-body connection between the way we per perceive pain is so important. That and I have seen women have orgasmic birth. I've seen it. And I'm part of a group of orgasmic birth practitioners who studies, who has studied with um, the woman who made the original movie about orgasmic birth, Deborah Pascale Bonaro, whose work I will link in the show notes. Um, when you've seen someone give birth orgasmically, or, or at least, or even just ecstatically, where they don't seem to be in any pain, the only explanation for that, the only explanation for that is their mind. Because the same thing is happening in their body that's happening in your body or that has happened in my body, right? The, 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 the actual physical action of birthing a baby is the same, regardless of your body. Uh, so the only thing that makes sense is that they have rewritten those scripts around sensation in their mind and they have changed that from this is going to hurt to this is going to be intense or this is going to be big or whatever. Whatever, you know, term works for them to define it. 
And this is a this is good work to do during your pregnancy. One of the other things that I think is really difficult is that as a culture, we very frequently hear mostly horror stories about birth. So we really don't know what's possible because the women who are having really pleasurable or births that are not so miserable aren't always talking about it. First of all, first, because of shame, because we are, as Americans anyway, are kind of um, repressed sexually and don't want to think about or talk about sex. And that's a unfortunate. That's unfortunate because the baby gets in there by sex and the same hormones that put the baby in there are the hormones that get the baby out of there. So to deny the sexual aspect of labor is to deny a huge piece of it that can create a lot of pleasure. So in my personal experience, I have had hospital births and home birth and medicated with an epidural and unmedicated. And my unmedicated births were actually even more pleasurable for me than the medicated ones. And the reason I think for this is my own endorphins, right? Of course, my ability to remain really present and in my body with what was going on, as opposed to being very detached from it and sort of, you know, if you talk about control and wanting to regain or retain control in birth, you have to really surrender to birth. But what's so fascinating is that people are apt to get an epidural that removes your control and don't have a problem with that part of it, with surrendering control there. Because you're surrendering control of your mobility most of the time when you get an epidural. You're certainly not walking. You might be able to roll from side to side. You might even in a low dose epidural be able to get up on your hands and knees or squat every now and then I can get a client into those positions. But for the most part, you're numb and you're laying down. And to me, the ability to move around and be free was more valuable than the sensation relief. And then having a really tight, connected family and having my children present, my partner present, my doula, my best friend. You know, I had a room full of people when I had my fifth baby at home. And I, while I will not say it was not without intensity, it was most of it quite lovely. And there were several times during my labor that my husband looked at me and said something, you know, to the effect of, this is so much fun. Uh, I love this, We're, ha you know, because we were really having a good time. And I was definitely saying, like, this is hard. And he said to me a few times, I remember, you're making this look really easy. It doesn't look hard. And I was just like, no, but it is. Um, it's hard. But it's hard work. But hard work doesn't mean agony, right? Um, I don't think anyone should suffer. And that's why... If we have folks whose labor have whose labors have gone on for days and days or who are being induced and whose contractions are coming from a chemical source, not from their own body, and those folks are really, really miserable, that the compassionate thing to do is to make sure they get an epidural because they need that relief. That's different, though. There's a difference between pain and suffering. Um, this is why... I often tell people I was burned in a, a fire a year and a half or so ago, our house burned down and I was burned really badly in the fire and I was in the hospital for um, five or six days. And during that time, you know, I had to have bandage changes several times a day and, and debridements and, and I would much rather give birth than do that by a hundred times. And the reason 
is because that pain, the, the pain or the sensations of labor make a lot of sense and they have a purpose, right? They're getting somewhere. I tell people in my class to use the acronym PAIN to remember the contractions and the way that they work in our bodies, right? They are P, purposeful. They're, they're on, per there's something happening, right? They're doing something. It's not like the pain of a burn that only has um, the effect of getting you away from the fire. And once you're out of the fire, why does it have to still hurt, right? The pain is to get you to move away, but what if you can't move away? Labor is not that way, right? This is a purposeful sensation that's leading to an ending. And it is A, anticipated, so you know when it's coming because if you just had one three minutes ago and three minutes before that and three minutes before that, guess what? Another one's coming at three minutes, right? Um, it's intermittent. It's not continual. Regardless of how long you're in labor, only about 25% of the time are actually contractions. So if you have a 16-hour labor, that's four hours of contractions, right? So it's intermittent. And so that's kind of a game you can tell yourself. And... What's N? Necessary. It's necessary. Um, it has to happen, right? This is how the baby gets out. It makes sense that this is how the baby gets out. Um, if it didn't make sense, then it wouldn't happen. Period. So that's the other thing to look at. Um, and then it's normal. It's normal. It's not like getting burned. That's two ends, but you get the idea. It's not like getting burned. It's a normal sensation that you're supposed to feel. As humans, we're not accustomed to high levels of adrenaline in the absence of danger. So when that adrenaline comes in in the end of labor, during transition, and women start to get fearful and say they can't do it or they want to give up, this is the time that their birth partner and doula really have to sort of, you know, double down on giving them lots of good positive feedback and reminding them that not only can they do it, but they are doing it and that it's almost over and that they're capable and so on and so forth. Because those affirmations from the people around us, particularly from other women who have birthed, seem to really, you know, they do the trick. Um, I often in labor will remind dads, I always remind dads, that if mom tends to gravitate towards the doula, especially when things get really intense, know that this is nothing about you. It's a biological drive for us to connect to someone who has been through it, who can tell us we can get through it, right? Because if she did it, I can do it. Um, I know that that's how I felt in my labor, and I know that that's how many of my clients have felt and then feel like they need to apologize to their husbands because they didn't want to be holding on to their husband at the very end. They end up holding my neck or something like that. Um, that's why. It's not because the husband doesn't provide comfort. It's because the woman in the room provides a sense of capability, right? She's she, she provides an affirmation that our husband's or partners that are male anyway, can't provide because they've never been through birth and they're never going to go through birth. So looking at them and saying, I can't do this, them saying, yes, you can, doesn't mean as much to you as it does if I say it, right? It's nice to have your partner's belief, but in those moments, I will um, have had dads before that have, you know, that when their partners say that it really hurts, they'll say, I know. And the partner, the laboring person will say, no, you don't know. 
you don't know. And that's true. They, they don't know. So I tried to tell dads, don't say I know, because it doesn't help. Um, but either way, right, we kind of search the room for the face that tells us we're capable. And that's often the doula, or if you don't have a doula, your nurse. Um, I did not have a doula with my first two kids, and I clung to my nurse for sure. Um, as a nurse, as a person who was a nurse in labor and delivery, I have those clients who I will never forget for that very reason, because um, at some point during their birth, they really needed someone outside of them, and they looked to me. Now, that all being said, everybody has within them all that they need to do the birth, to do it without any assistance at all. And sometimes I think if women were alone birthing, they would do better because they wouldn't have the pheromone of fear of other people in the room and they wouldn't be looking around the room for reassurance. They wouldn't be looking outside of themselves to people who would offer them reassurance. They would have to go internal and they would have to do do it on their own. And in a way, that has its own benefits. And folks that I have talked to that free birth, who this free birth means you don't have any birth attendant there. Um, it's just you, your partner. Uh, maybe there's a, a doula, but not anyone medically trained. But people who free birth uh, are generally, that's what they come out of their birth saying, that they surrendered, that they had to surrender to the experience and to themselves and that it was very powerful for that reason. So I can see why that would be. And as a as a birth worker and person who supports women in labor, if they if they need that support, I'm right there. But also if they go off on their own, I think that they know innately what they need. Um, I myself fell into this sort of looking around the room for answers when I was having my last couple of babies, because by this point I was already, I'd been a labor and delivery nurse. And so I had many years of experience under my belt of seeing babies born and was looking um, for affirmation that things were okay, mostly. Um, so the answer to can I handle the pain of birth is yes, of course you can. The problem is that our culture and our society doesn't set us up to handle it very well for lots of reasons. One, the drama, right? That was the most miserable thing. I mean, I grew up believing birth was so terrible because that's what my mom said. So changing that narrative. Um, two, the hospital doesn't leave you alone in your physiology and tends to bug you, which makes things harder for you. Again, we're going back to fear and pain perception, right? And then three, pain relief is right there. And they are driven, at least in America, to sell it to you because it's a business. Um, anesthesiologists get paid by the epidural. It's a separate bill to your insurance company. So if they don't do epidurals, they don't get paid. Um, in countries where medicine is socialized, like the UK, for example, not that they have birth all figured out, but this is the way it works there, is that the anesthesiologist is on staff. He's in the hospital all the time, he or she. So whether they do 20 epidurals or they do 10 or they do one or they do zero, they're still getting paid because they get paid like by the hour like nurses do. So they don't have a motivation to chase people down to try to get give them epidurals. And it's interesting because one of the things that I've seen over the years is that anesthesiologists have gotten quicker and quicker at doing them and are spending less and less time at the bedside and really just trying to get in and out of the room very, very quickly, come in, do the epidural, and get out to do the next epidural. 
or to go into the OR or whatever. Um, some of this might be because of the large caseload. Some of it might be driven by finances. I don't know. But I'll tell you that it's like water in the desert. When you walk in and you are uncomfortable and there is something available to alleviate that pain and someone immediately offers it to you, it is very, very difficult to say no. It's very, very difficult. And you have to have a really, really strong why going in. So reasons to avoid epidurals. Um, we have to go over in a whole other podcast where we talk about epidurals, what they do, how they work, what's in them. But arming yourself with that information and knowledge and going in with a very clear why you don't want one, if you don't want one, is very, very useful and really quite necessary. If I have a client tell me that they don't know if they want an epidural, they're on the fence, they're not sure, they're going to get an epidural almost 100% of the time. Um, and that's fine. That's fine if that's what they want. But what I want people to know and what drives me in this education is to give folks all the information so you have all the details so that the quote unquote informed consent you're getting in the hospital, which really only addresses some of what's going on, it's not enough. Um, it's not enough. So we need to be educating women what epidurals do, how they change birth outcomes so that everyone walks in with 100% knowledge and awareness of the potential shifts in outcomes. Just because you get completely dilated or to nine centimeters and you wait that long to get an epidural does not reduce the risk of those other things happening still. Labor being, labor, you know, length of labor being increased, increased length of pushing being increased, your, um, you know, tearing being usually more severe in a, in a supine position and then with the added piece of I can't feel my body. So I'm pushing um, and tearing because I would be guarding if I could feel it. So you have to know all those things and you really need to be informed and walk in with a real clear idea of what you want before you get there. Um, when I have clients that say I didn't want the epidural and I got one, you know, that are disappointed in themselves, the first thing I remind people again is that the system is not set up to support you in that way. It's very, very difficult. You know, you, uh, you really need external support in the hospital. You really need a doula. You need someone to help you navigate not just the labor and the birth, but the politics of the hospital so that you can get space and so that you can get what you desire and so that she can create space between you and care providers in the hospital so that you and your partner can discuss things um, and have time to think about things. And if you don't have that and you don't have education and you don't trust birth and you don't understand what's happening in your body because no one taught you the physiology, all of that stuff equals fear, which equals a greater perception of pain. And you're already in a place where they have pain relief available. So it's very easy to elect and say yes. So um, the last thing I'll say, I'll finish it off with my experience, and it is this. I have worked with people, of course, with unmedicated and medicated and all different kinds of medication. But I have never had a client ever, 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 ever regret natural childbirth. 
I've never had a client on the other side of their birth say, I wish I'd gotten the epidural. I have had clients say they wish they hadn't. So for me, that's powerful. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. There are certainly cases where an epidural is very warranted, and that's a very case-by-case -case basis. We love them when they're needed. But in a normal physiological uncomplicated birth, they're usually not needed. And what's really needed more is surrender and trust. And to know that you are so, so capable of managing whatever comes your way during your birth, whether it's expected or unexpected. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't be given something you couldn't handle, right? Okay, I hope you found this episode helpful and happy birthday. The information on this podcast should not be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. Thank you.